The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hey guys, I'd like to take a second to shout out the network that helps distribute our show, Armchair Media. Armchair is a collection of 50-plus podcasts, including ours, trying to localize the sports world a bit more. Uh, We've been with them for, I don't know, like six months or so, but we have really enjoyed working with Andrew and the rest of the team. Saints Happy Hour podcast, you guys have heard us talk about them in the past, but starting June 1st, Bet Online will serve as the title sponsor for Armchair Armchair Network as well as our show. Pretty cool, right? Uh, gone are the days of, of mowing our respective lawns. Now we are on to online sports gambling. So I guess that's a step uh, forward. Also, I want to shout out the Nine Club. It's the world's largest skateboarding podcast hosted by professional skaters Chris Roberts and Kelly Hart. Uh, perhaps Kevin knows who they are. You can follow them at the Nine Club to see all things Armchair. Search Armchair Media wherever you get your pods and make sure to check out Armchair's website, armchairmedianetwork.com. You are listening to The Bird Calls on the Armchair All-American Network. For more on your Pelicans, go to iTunes, search The Bird Calls, and subscribe today. Pels fans, welcome to another episode of the Bird Calls Podcast. I'm your host and contributor to the birdrights.com, Preston Else. Today we are recapping the Jordan Doc, talking about getting back to basketball, taking questions, so much more. To help, we've got the whole squad, starting with the editor-in-chief to the birdrights.com, the silver fox himself, Mr. Ali Cosell. What's up, man? I do not look that old. That's not nice. <laughs> but 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 I'm glad you said it because after watching the Michael Jordan documentary, I felt like I have to make a list. So guess what? Your name's going on it. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, that was just a shout out to your hair. Uh, as everybody knows from the <laughs> famous American Idol winner, uh, Taylor Hicks, it is very much possible to have white hair even in your 20s. So not necessarily a personal shot, although uh, one might have been embedded in there deep within the soil. Uh, next up, the once and future prince of the protocol, who is just telling us about their uh, current events, Mr. Kevin Berrios. What's up, dude? Nothing much. That's awesome. I, you just did the read for uh, Armchair, and I'm very excited that we were teamed up with the Nine Club. I love that podcast. It's great. Sweet. Tell our listeners quickly, because I don't know anything about skateboarding. Uh, what What do you know about those two skaters? What do you know about the network? Just uh, kind of plug them for a second. I mean, it's just uh, they get a lot of pro skaters on there t- telling stories of growing up, telling stories about filming uh, skate videos, behind the scenes stuff and stuff like that. You know, they it, it covers everything. They talk about, you know, graphics for boards, uh, a lot of skate history, a lot of competition history. Um, it's a really fun podcast. There's a lot of, you know, music talk in there too, because, you know, skateboarding and music is so heavily tied together. And, you know, if you have any kind of interest in that sort of stuff, it's definitely worth a listen and a subscribe. Well, Kevin, if you would like to host your own podcast, uh, we've been doing this for, I don't know, three years, and Kevin has been a co-host, but he's never technically hosted his own podcast, although he came close with, I'm forgetting his name, the the, the guy from the Golden State Warriors who has his own record labor. What's his name? Uh, Mike Park. Yes. Uh, if you would like to host your own podcast with one of these guys, I'm sure we can we can arrange that for you. Let's let's go ahead. You just heard his voice. The host to 1280 AM's Hard in the Paint, and the man Etwan Moore once scolded post-game. 
Mr. David Grubb. How was the show today? Oh, we had a great show. It was uh, very lively. Um, we talked with um, NFL writer Russell Baxter, you know, NFL got into a lot of things about the Saints and projections for the Super Bowl. That was cool. And then uh, talked some Pels and talked a little bit about Michael Jordan um, in second hour. And then got into the NFL stuff with their uh, new proposals to the Rooney rule, which are really bad in my opinion but you know that was something that we i felt like we needed to discuss and so the last couple of days we've tried to go in depth on that and you're gonna be on tomorrow 10 35 central time um just to make sure there there's no uh there's no dissension there among those who might be on the eastern uh time zone like myself why don't you talk about the rooney uh rule a little bit more david and your thoughts on it uh so we can you know just give our our listeners a taste of what your radio show is like and it also gives me time to search for a quote that i'm looking for okay um well the nfl has proposed that uh it'd be required that all teams interview um two minority candidates for every head coaching job and one for every coordinator job and that they must interview either a minority or a woman for every front office job, executive front office job. So that's stupid. The second part of it that make it, makes it worse is that they want to award draft picks for teams that do hire African-American coaches uh, or minority coaches. Um, so like a third rounder, a team would get a third round pick um, for hiring a black coach. So they put a price like, you know, you, you put a value on what a human being is, uh, again, which is always something that is a little bit um, sketchy for me. Um, and then on top of that, I, I don't think it, it addresses the issue. Um, Mina Kimes did an article for ESPN uh, a couple years back, and studies by Georgetown, George Washington, or Iowa State University, and Emory um, said that a white coach with the same qualifications as a black coach was 114% more likely to get a coaching job or a coordinator job than the black coach. That is not about getting two interviews. You know, that doesn't change it. It's the attitudes. It's, are you, how do you see me? Because even if you interview me and you never see me in that position, if you don't think that's where I belong, and that's what a lot of this in my mind is, is perception because the goalposts always move. They say, if you have this job and you do this thing, then you're qualified. And then you see in the NFL guys with one year experience, guys with, who have never coached a team before, get hired as NFL head coaches, guys 33 years old who have never coached at the NFL and they get the job. So, and I mean, even in the last three years, they've seen a 50% decrease in the number of black coaches in the NFL. So, I mean, in a league that's, more than 60% African-American and more than 70% people of color. It makes no sense that that few number of um, black men or even women are involved in uh, coaching opportunities. Yeah, and our own head coach, I, I imagine most of our listeners are Saints fans. Sean Payton last summer was very outspoken and that some of the people you were uh, prefacing that do get an earlier opportunity than most. He he said he looked forward very much to playing those guys. So uh, those who are Saints fans know that Sean Payton kind of sits on the same bench that David Grubb is talking about, about giving those who are deserving and who have earned an opportunity that chance versus somebody who's part of a coaching tree and maybe was a coordinator uh, for a year and assisted in a good season. Anyway, I'm, I'm out of my depth right now. So let's talk about something I do know a bit more about. Hey, real quick, Preston, let me yeah. interrupt you. I found it really interesting. You guys catch what JJ Reddick said the other day, um, since we're talking kind of about racism and all that. 
Oh about yeah, about Donald, Donald Sterling. Donald Sterling did not like white players, so they didn't want to really sign and put the money forward to get JJ Redick. How crazy yeah. was that? I yeah, mean, I've heard that before. I've heard that story before. Oh, have you? I had never yeah. heard that. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's pretty fair if you've ever watched Chris Kamen play. Chris oh, Kamen. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, Chris Kamen. He was all right, man. He wasn't bad. Nick Selton Brandon those first solid. years. <laughs> I watched. I watched that team a lot. Like the, the, the Brand, Lamar Odom. Uh, <laughs> I love that Quentin Richardson. I love that area era of the Clippers, especially because Bill Walton called their games. And so, and like, Kamen was a nasty was dude. Cast. Yes. I watched them all the time. Kamen wasn't bad. He had I'm just, a nasty edge to him, and I liked. I liked that. He was I'm better just, than Ola Wakandi, that's for sure. Sure I'm just was. kicking over the Keith Hornets' Paul. nest, so to speak. I'm yes, sure you guys are. remember Chris Kamen was part of the Chris Paul trade that came to the New Orleans Hornets, I want to say, in 2011. Anyway, let's talk about current events. Let's start with Ollie. David Griffin, yesterday you were part of that Zoom uh, press conference that came pretty much out of nowhere. Uh, I don't think any of us anticipated it was happening. Uh, there were a lot of quotes, a lot to digest here. I'm going to bring this one up. I think this one might be the most relevant, uh, talking about returning to action. And David Griffin kind of hinted that if we do return to action, and even if the Pelicans do get enough games to seemingly get back into that hunt for the playoffs, it might not be the same schedule that we saw in front of us. He kind of lamented that the Pelicans had played the most difficult strength of schedule to that point. They had the easiest strength of schedule going forward. And now all of that, if they do return, could possibly change. He said, quote, I would anticipate that if we come back, there would be enough games for us to do some damage. I think, honestly, the thing that's most disappointing is that whatever happens now, the schedule won't be the same as what we had in front of us. The softest part of our schedule was in front of us. Now, obviously, that's just one excerpt that I chose to uh, take out of what is thousands of words of text. So, Ali, let's just break this down a little bit. There are 30 teams. They're all potentially going to be in one spot. Obviously, they're not going to be playing in front of the Smoothie uh, King Center. But aside from that, why would the schedule change? Well, you, they're looking at from, I think, you've got to think from a logistical standpoint, right? I mean, it's either you jump straight to the playoffs, which I still think if anything is going to happen, a lot of people feel this way, that that's the route it's going to take. But if they do bring back some regular season, I don't think it sounds like that they're going to be able to complete every single game. It was like 250 some odd games that were still left to be played by all the teams. They're thinking um, something less than that, obviously. But I think the best news, Preston, from this quote, though, was that they're not going to have these non-playoff bound teams come back just to serve as some doormat, right? We were harping on this right when the news came out that this would be the worst thing in the world for somebody like the Pelicans, Kings, you name, but especially the Pelicans, when you've got, you know, players that have had kind of spotty injury histories and you didn't want them just come back to play what six seven eight games so at least that's been eliminated from the thought process it sounds like so i'm happy about that now as far as kind of your question yeah i mean the schedule was never going to be as easy even if they played out the remainder of the regular regular season uh and all you got to think about is the fact that every team for the most part has gotten healthier Certainly all these teams that are the bottom feeders, they're not going through those doldrums of their fourth, fifth, sixth consecutive month of playing and already being out of the playoffs, realistically anyways. And suddenly they're probably going to have a little bit more motivations from just so from that standpoint alone, you've got to expect that the competitiveness factor and everybody kind of being on the same uh, keel of rust, rustiness, you know, kind of the chemistry is not going to be there. You've got to expect. So suddenly, yeah, the schedule by default is going to be harder. But again, David Griffin wisely said, look, the Pelicans have nobody to blame but themselves. They put themselves in that position. But, hey, I'm, I'm just happy that if they do come back, 
um, that they will be given an opportunity to play for the playoffs. I think that's the biggest key. You just don't want them to coming out to play for, you know, two, three weeks, whatever, just to get the playoff teams kind of ready to go. All right, Kevin, let's continue to expand on that. Uh, obviously, in the Eastern Conference, it's already sewn up. The Wizards have an almost insurmountable six-game, uh, I guess, deficit to the Orlando Magic. So you would imagine there's no point for any of those teams to play. However, like Ali said, in the Western Conference, you've got the Phoenix Suns, who are only three games behind the Portland Trailblazers, who are hot on the heels of the Memphis Grizzlies. So pretty much every team outside of the Timberwolves and the Warriors is at play. With that being said, I think uh, Ali reported that only six to eight Pelicans players uh, showed up for the practice facility. A lot of the others are out of town. Seven. Kevin, what does that tell you about the seriousness of the players coming back? Do you think uh, there's a point in time to which they'll recall all of these Pelicans players, or do you think they're going to continue to work out in their respective uh, home states? Well, I mean, I think once they have a concrete plan and they know that the league is coming back, you know, once they get closer to having things in place that it's just a matter of voting on this specific, everybody's going to come back and and preparedness for the season. I mean, you have to. Um, so I still am, I still don't think the regular season's going to happen. I, I think it's just too much, too many hurdles to jump through, um, and too many things can derail it very quickly. Um, but if they, if, you know, for, if I'm wrong, uh, then I think that, you know, as soon as they are about 80, 75, 80% sure that I'm wrong, that they'll be calling everybody in to start getting prepared for, for the season. And I think one thing that, to add on to what Ali was saying, one thing that I think is interesting is, you know, around this time, we start to see rookies hit that rookie wall, but now they have that break. You know, we were a little bit of an advantage because Zion missed so much time. He did, he, you know, he was like sort of going to be immune to the rookie wall because he was playing a limited amount of games. But now when you're trying to catch Memphis and you have uh, John Moran and Brandon Clark, who are, you know, big parts of what they do uh, on that team and their success this year, that, you know, you could sort of count on them maybe falling behind a little bit if the season played out as it was just because of the rookie wall that we all know typically happens to every rookie. Um, But now they've had you know, months off to, to rest and recover. Um, so they'll probably come back more invigorated. So it makes it a little bit harder. So that might be something that David Griffith was referencing too in, in those comments. Yeah, and he definitely touched upon the rehab of Zion. Apparently Zion has been going to the facility and has been getting worked on ever since the season was postponed. That's something they cleared with the NBA office. David, I'm going to pose this question to you. Obviously, throughout the season, we talked about the importance of of making that playoff run, at least competing for that playoff run. That's not a bunch of rookies. We do have some young veterans in addition to, you know, age ones like J.J. Redick, who's never missed the playoffs, Drew Holiday, Derek Favors, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, David, how important is reaching the playoffs for the for the Pelicans to you? Not this season, because I it, I don't know what it means anymore. Um, it's just, it's so hard to quantify any of it. The opportunity to pay, com- play competitive basketball, if it's, again, if it's in an environment that is healthy and uh, assuming all those things take place, sure. It's, it's always good to get more competitive games in, to get more practice time in. But I don't know now what a playoff berth would mean um realistically because again like kevin said there's so many things that have changed there's so many asterisks to put in place these are not the same teams coming back that we had when we left none of them and so it's 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 just it's so much harder to read and again the that that'll be the only thing i think we lost um in our discovery of the pelicans this season 
is seeing what it would be in that inferno to see if they could come out of it um, and, and make it to the playoffs. But everything else, again, I, I'm, I'm in the camp that this has been a successful season by every other uh, measurement. It's just, yeah, it's a little, it sucks to, to, if that's what you lose, but if it does come back, I, I really just don't know what I would make of it. Ollie, it's time to ask the question that everyone in New Orleans is is wondering. Uh, let's just get it out there and debate it. Kenrich Williams, Ollie, uh, he's been having his back rehab. David Griffin said that the time spent with his rehabilitation might have been more beneficial than even that to Zion. Obviously, I'm kidding, but Ollie, uh, <laughs> Kenrich showed uh, a, a lot of usefulness early in the season as kind of a versatile Swiss Army Knife guy, but he never really developed that offensive game. Uh, he was a willing facilitator, and he knew where to move the ball to, but never really attacked the basket. His three-point shot wasn't falling. How important is it to you that the Pelicans get another glimpse, another look at Kenrich to see what he can do throughout like a nine-man rotation before they have this, this difficult off-season uh, decision to make where they're going to be pretty tight on cap space and his qualifying offer is coming up in addition to the, the possibility of re-signing him? Super important. I mean, he, he was brought back um, to basically be evaluated this season along with a lot of other players, but... For him, it was crucial because he has not really earned a place in this league yet. He, he basically got his foot in the door with his first contract with the Pelicans. And, you know, he has had his up and downs, as you kind of just relayed to us. And, look, he started off, I think, the season a lot better. And then all of a sudden, he, he just you could see the confidence draining from him to where I can't remember. But he went, didn't he go through his stretch, guys, where he missed like 20 or some three-pointers in a row? Yeah. I mean, he, he was floundering to where he was even passing up open shots. And, you just can't do that in today's game, and especially in an Alvin Gentry-led offense, and he was. And so, you know, I remember during that 13-game losing streak, people bemoaning the fact that he was on the court in closing minutes when this guy wasn't going to help you score. But, you know, Alvin Gentry didn't have a lot of options. He was, I think, the Pelicans' best rebounder at the time. He, he, he gets made out to be a bigger and better defender than he is, but he still does some things well, and I love the way he plays team defense. You know, one-on-one, -on -one, he still can use a lot of work, but he, he just has that vibe and, and kind of that energy. He provides that energy that that team, especially back then, really needed. So there's certain things you like about his game that you think could be very useful on a squad like this to be a, that type of role player. But, yeah, he, he still needs to find some kind of offense. You know, we've seen those flashes. Like I said, his three-point shot, the forms have, has improved. You talk to the coaches, they, they say the same. They say he knocks down quite a bit. But when the game comes on, he doesn't. You know, in the summer, we saw some more playmaking at him where he made some really nice passes, especially just that one game he had with Zion. I remember clearly him finding what, him Zion for two or three baskets. And that was all because of Kenrich's reads. But we didn't see that in the regular season. So he does need to show that. And if he doesn't get the opportunity, yeah, it's definitely going to hurt his chances because the Pelicans roster, you know, it, it's kind of top-heavy with a lot of young guys. And it's only going to get worse if they bring Didi over from the NBL, NBL in Australia. And you've got to think about a couple of draft picks. They're at least going to cash in a couple, you've got to think, when they've got four in the upcoming draft. Oh, can, I, can I add to this, please? Yeah, get please. in there. To me, there is no – I don't care if the Pelicans get 50 more games. There's <laughs> nothing that Kenrich Williams can do to prove that he belongs on this roster. Really? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because he does not serve a purpose going forward. If my top rotation is Drew Holiday, Lonzo Ball, um, Ingram, Zion, Favors, Redick, Etwan Moore, Josh Hart, Jackson Hayes, 
and you, where am I going to play Kenridge? Who's your reliable big three, four Hart wing is giving defender? Me my rebounds. Hold on, Hart is giving me the rebounds that that Kenridge was giving me, if not more. He's he can put the ball on the floor. Kenridge can't score in transition. He can't score in the half court. He can't shoot the ball. His he's not fast enough to play um, small forwards. He's not strong enough to defend fours. He doesn't give you anything that you can't replace at this point. And he's always hurt. His knees were bad when he got to this team. He's not worth keeping. If you're trying to keep Frank Jackson in the mix, if for, for some people who want to see him play, if you're talking about trying to get any minutes for um, somebody else on the wing, who, who? And then you're talking about next year, Darius Miller's still under contract, and you got to figure out what they're going to do with him. So why would you possibly keep Kenrich around when you can find an effort guy who is about the same height, if not taller, and who can shoot better than zero for 22? I want to get in on this, but obviously I want uh, Kevin's two cents. So, Kevin, we're going to talk about all the Pelicans incoming free uh, agents briefly. But but start about Kenrich, because he's a polarizing figure. He was part of that seven-man rotation. Where does he fit long-term in your eyes? It's funny because, like, uh, last season I made a joke, like, during the Lakers trade uh, talks that, uh, you know, I went and trade Kenrich Williams for Brandon Ingram. It was a joke. And like every few months, some Lakers fan or some, you know, whatever brings it up on my, on my Twitter timeline. So it's pretty funny for me to talk about Kenrick, but um, you know, I like Kenrick. He's a hustle guy. He's like a glue guy, but I agree with what Grubb said. Like, you know what you have in him. Um, He's easily upgradable, especially now that this team has some, you know, some star power with, with Zion, Lonzo, Ingram, you can get a guy now like a Damari Carroll or something like that in the off season, that would be a much better player that you can rely on that can also provide some veteran leadership. That's been in key moments, uh, big moments that can help these young guys get, get in place and all of that, that kind of stuff. But in Kenrick's defense, like to me, like he would be, if you're running your G league team as a team to actually develop certain guys that you want uh, to eventually be on your roster, Kenrick's a guy that I think is perfect for that situation, not to be developing him to be on the main roster, but as a guy that's going to do the dirty work, he's going to be good enough to play minutes in in the G League, but also he's not going to be trying to steal shine from people. He's going to be doing the things to make the guys around him better that you're trying to develop, you know, getting those rebounds, scrapping, playmaking. So I think that's really what his role is should be going forward in the future. I mean, I would love for him to join the the Pelicans uh, G League team. I don't know that he would be happy with that, but I also no. don't know that he has an opportunity on any other team in the NBA to be on the third uh, on the uh, 15 man roster. So it may end up coming to that. He may reject it just out of like, you know, felt like he got slighted. Go to Europe first, Kevin. What's that? Who would He'll take go to who, Europe before G League? Jeez, I would, would you pay for pay for a guy with okay. Let me go back to David Grubb because he had some <laughs> polarizing thoughts on him. We're we're gonna make you follow up on this. Now, now I'm I'm not fighting for Ken Rich Williams as a as a future starter in the NBA. Uh maybe even not necessarily a seventh or an eighth man. Where I will argue for Ken Rich Williams is we know that the coaching staff likes two things about him. Uh Kevin just mentioned he's a smart player. Uh he knows the game of basketball. He knows how to dictate an offense and on the defensive side of the floor. We saw him at Summer League uh last year. Fred Vincent said that he he had to turn the offense over to him after Zion went down, after Frank Jackson 
Jackson went down. Uh, the, kind of, the, the guys were floundering, and Kenrich kind of organized the sets for them. So we know he works hard. We know he's very smart. We know he has length. Here's where I'll argue for him. Because you mentioned Etuan Moore. You mentioned Darius Miller. If they bring back Darius Miller, he's going to cost them $7 million. If they bring back Etuan Moore, you think it'd be close to like the $8 million that he made this year. They can extend a qualifying offer to Kenrich Williams at $2 million. Do you think that Kenrich Williams at $2 million is less valuable than Darius Miller, Etuan Moore at like four or five times that price? Yeah, because I'd rather use that $2 million to bolster my front court. I'd rather do that and take that $2 million and apply it to something else. Because that doesn't mean I have to keep him for $2 million. I can do whatever I want with that money. And, and I want to, if I'm going to use my money as the Pelicans, I need, I need somebody, I need depth in my front court, and I need more length than Kenrich provides at 6'7". It's just not enough. He's not that long. He's not that skilled that I can't replace him. I just, at least I can have each one on a night, he's going to come in and he's going to make me five or six shots on a given night that I can count on. You know what I mean? He, he's still in the top five, as you've pointed out, of three-point percentage in the last three years. So I want to keep that around. And if Darius is healthy, that's a contract that's much more movable than somebody taking Kenrich on just to, you know, I mean, he's fodder. But $7 million is something that somebody could take off of their cap. So, I mean, yeah, I don't see why. I don't, I don't see what the reason would be to keep Kenrich. There's, you're not developing him into anything. If he's in your 10-man rotation, you're not a championship team. All right, you don't do think it. he did enough? But, Grab, I got to pose this to you. The, the, the numbers early before, you know, basically Favors came back, right, after his mom passed away. But December. they were still he, bad as a team. And it, he was like the best. They were bad as a team, most... but he was the best of the worst. And, you, and I, I want to ask mean? you, no, seriously, for some, let me just ask you this. Let me finish. He's a very cerebral player. We know that from just watching him, talking to, you know, coaches on the team, other players. There's, I feel like, that, that's something that gets completely undervalued in today's game. We know. I don't think it does. We, you we don't think so. Very, you don't think that no, every roster has the amount of intelligence that it wants on his squad. We talked. No, do I think they have enough yet? No. But Kenrich is in his second year. He's not going to lead that team. And he's not going to ever. He's not that voice. And, and there should be other enough professionals as far as knowing how to do their jobs that he's just not, I don't see the value because ultimately it's like, what do you do on the court? And yes, he's smart. And yes, he can move the ball, but eventually against good teams, you've got to contribute something. You've got to put points on the board. There has to be a night when you can drop 17 or 18 in that spot because everybody on that roster is going to be expected to do that on, on a given night. And I don't see him getting to the point where he does that or the Pelicans having the time to invest in him to wait for him to get there on the timeline that they want to be great. I'm going to follow up with this, and then I'm going to turn it over to Kevin. Lonzo, Josh Hart, Drew Holiday, Brandon Ingram, Nicolo Melli, Jackson Hayes, Zion, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, those uh, eight players next year are potentially going to cost the Pelicans $110 million. That's excluding Etwan Moore, Derek Favors, Darius Miller, all those guys. Do you see the value of bringing back a cheap player? Obviously, I, I think of it more like this. Kevin, if you can find a player in the second round you think is more valuable than, than Kenrich Williams, then yes, it makes sense to dismiss him. Would you fight for a two million guy who's six foot seven like Kenrich? Like, I mean, I agree really with, with Grub. I mean, like, you know, we can we can praise him for his IQ all the time. 
you know, but who's listening to him? You know, like the, he hasn't done anything in the league. He may be smart and understand the game, but you're going to, you're going to tell me that he's going to be coaching up Brandon Ingram. Like Brandon Ingram's not going to be listening to Henrik Williams. Now, if you brought in like an older vet that, that has some experiences past his prime, but can give you five, six minutes, maybe even 10 minutes a game when you need to spotting, but also has a reputation, has experience that those guys will respect and listen to. That's a much better option to me or, you know, go and take a chance on a, on a second round pick or an undrafted guy. Um, that seems like they, they have the same sort of skill set that he has and see if they are a better player than what Kenrick brought to the game. But again, if Kenrick's like where we're at now as a team with the depth that we have, with the amount of players that we have, if Kenrick's getting minutes, then something's going completely wrong. Um, and then I just don't think those intangibles really translate much to the pro team now switch switch roles and put them on the g league team a guy who's played minutes in the league had minutes in the league and now he's providing that to the g league guys now to me that makes a lot more sense and maybe that's something that gets him started that way and leads him into a career of coaching because you know like you said he's a high iq guy that understands the game he just doesn't have the other pieces that he needs whether it's the confidence or the skills or the athleticism to actually stick in the league. All right. I think we've talked uh, more than probably anybody was anticipating about Ken Rich Williams. Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about a guy that we probably should discuss. And that's Zion Williamson. I don't have the quote in front of me, but I'll, I'll look for it after uh, I flip this over to Ali. Uh, basically the question was just posed has stopping play uh, help Zion. And here it is. He says, I think it potentially, Oh, that's another Ken Rich Williams quote. Anyway, he says, I think of all our players, it was a setback for him from a conditioning standpoint, but just buying more time, uh, more Ken Rich Williams stuff. God, David Griffin really wanted to talk about Ken Rich Williams. Anyway, Ali, from your perspective, obviously Zion's going to be out of conditioning. However, he still is in front of Aaron Nelson and the staff there. How critical is it that the Pelicans still have their hands, eyes, and ears on Zion? Oh, absolutely. It means everything because you, you, they were still always rehabbing him. That's why he was allowed to continue this protocol of where the NBA allowed um, for every team players that they applied for to keep coming to a training facility for rehab purposes. Zion wasn't at 100%, they felt like. And um, you've got to believe that the data backed that up or to where they still need to keep, you know, whatever, whatever red flags were being given off. So I think this was all a, a, a positive, right? Uh, he got in his 19 games. Um, I have no idea. We have no idea of what those 19 games did to him from the first game to the 19th in terms of how his knees maybe showed on, on like inflammation and all, 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 all the type of data that you can derive. But the fact that he's been rehabbing, the fact that they've been able to keep an eye, I guess, on his body weight too and just in general, I mean, that can't be nothing but a benefit, you have to think. I mean, remember, they were talking about being – having a lot more restrictive minutes for the guy to where it felt like this, he would probably be held out to back to backs. He would probably be limited to, you know, under 30 minutes a game for sure with those, what, four spurts per game of five, six, seven minutes, but that quickly went out the window. So like I said, it's nice. I think from just a medical standpoint that, okay, you push the gas down a little bit further, but that now suddenly you were allowed to basically break off of that to where, okay, let's reevaluate how much effect did it have? Um, and if everything came out flying colors, well, then it's like he passed the first test. 
I, I, I just don't see a negative outside of, of course, then just from a competitive standpoint that he wasn't able to continue, you know, learning the game, going up against NBA professional, working on how he can be more successful. But, you know, from a physical standpoint, um, I think it's nothing but a winner. Yeah, absolutely. I saw that Grub muted himself a moment ago. So let's skip him and go to Kevin. Kevin, talk about Zion. He's been within the facility for the past two and a half months. Now the other guys are joining him. Where do you think you would consider him to be uh, in terms of his physicality since the end of the season? Obviously, he might have lost some conditioning. But in terms of the strength of that knee, do you think we might see a more powerful Zion if we return to action soon? I mean, possibly. It's like an impossible question for me to answer without having the the data or see video of him or, you know, things like that. So it's really just speculation. But I mean, based off of the trust that we have and the staff that we brought in, then working with him and not him not having to go through the rule of, of playing games and stuff like that, you would think that his body is in shape and in better condition and better prepared to take tackle on whatever games come forward the rest of the year um but you know like i said it's it's kind of ridiculous for me to say what i think about that because i you know i don't have any data or or any visuals of him doing things so um but you would just with the trust that we have in aaron nelson and the track record that he's shown you would have to think that you know it's progressing in a in a very solid way and then also just the wear and tear of playing like we talked i talked about the rookie wall earlier he was not likely to hit it because he hasn't played that many games to begin with anyway, but it definitely has, you know, sort of removed that from the equation for sure. I would think. I'm going to go to grub for a hot take. Now Uh, all we talk about with these players is conditioning. Where are they going to be when we return? What's their physicality going to be like? We rarely talk about for these young player, which fill the Pelicans roster about how this time can benefit them intellectually, how they can learn the game. Uh, Zion got 19 games under his belt. You would think along with all that rehab is coming a lot of coaching, a lot of informational sessions. Do you think he might come back a smarter uh, player, principally on the defensive end? Well, I'm sure you know, he's had more time now to watch film than he's had the entire year. So to sit back and I, I would guarantee that if he's been in the facility b- along with that rehab, they've put up a lot of cutups um, on his, uh, you know, iPod, whatever he's using to his iPhone, his tablet, just they've, they've got given him the situations and they've shown him where he's made his mistakes and where he's had his successes. And I would imagine that, yeah, he's he's gone through those over and over again. He's looked at certain players. He's looked at guys. How did the Lakers defend him? How did Giannis defend him? How did you know? And learning those things that we talked about about how to use his size officially against length and what he can do with his ball handling, when to put the ball on the floor. So I would absolutely hope. I mean, for, and from all indications that he does consume the game of basketball that way, that he has spent that time watching film and that the rest of his teammates. Um, have been watching from that very successful period that they've had together. Um, and when they had the best rating in the NBA as a starting lineup, I'm sure they're looking at those things too and seeing why are we successful at this and having that distance now of not just playing, but being able to break it down for each other and see even more, where does he like the ball? Where does, you know, defensively, where am I covering? Where, you know, I think it's, it, it can't help but be better. And you know the Pelicans staff. Uh, was prepared in that way for this time. Yeah, we got we got a glimpse of Zion and the way he views the game right during the. I don't know if you guys saw it, but I did. Yes. Where he was on that Pelicans playback, and he was you know going through some plays that they highlighted, 
and just to hear his thought process and his thoughts on those specific plays, you could tell the gears were turning. So, yeah, David, I think you're nailing it. I think just just having him have the time to look at games and where he was at a position and just knowing, you know, just by instinct, let alone, you know, all, all the teaching that may be going on through Zoom or just communication with the coaches. But just having that time to watch a V, I feel like this kid is smart enough to where he can figure that out on his own. And therefore, undoubtedly, it would be helpful. All right, I'm going to go ahead and move on. Let's talk about the last dance. We've got about uh, 10, 15 minutes to talk about that. And then we've got one question from our friend Waka Waka Wakanda. Don't let me forget it. Kevin, I'm going to start with you because we don't start with you very often. Let's let's talk about the documentary as a whole and principally about Michael Jordan. What did you learn about Michael Jordan, the human being, that you might not have previously known? Or how do, at least do you think the documentary framed him? Um. You know, a lot of people are talking about how it's not really journalism or whatever, but like, I don't, I'm not going to pick apart anything. Like, I think, like, uh, we understand that he was involved in the making of it. So we understand that he's going to have, you know, a little bit of control of how he looks, but I don't think he necessarily tried to sugarcoat what he was about in, in it very much. I mean, we saw, you know, all the stories about how he treated teammates and, and, um, you know, the fights and, and just like the, the way he wanted to crush people. Like if he had a perceived slight, um, you know, he wanted to go out and destroy that person uh, after they slighted him. And I, and I thought that was very interesting the way he was constantly searching for motivation and constantly searching for a challenge, you know, like that story of, with Horace Grant, where like he made Horace Grant go get that $5 because he needed that money in his pocket to have that like victory and that, that, um, you know, like I took your money, even though it's like five dollars is nothing to either of those guys. Um, but, you know, it's just like it's an interesting, like super competitive mentality, um, which is like it's weird for me because like I never grew up as a sports fan. Like the the, the year of the last dance, that was the first year I really got into uh, basketball um, because I was like into skateboarding and punk rock and stuff like that. We're just totally opposite of like the vibe you need to be like uh, an athlete, like a, like, you know, I don't have that, that I want to take somebody down mentality. So it's like hard for me to relate to it, but it's very interesting to watch and see like how different like that mentality is to the mentality that I grew up with. And, um, you know, to, to see motivating factors and just competition that way, because like even though skateboarding is like evolved into like this, uh, big industry of um, of competitions like X Games and stuff like that. When I was getting into it, it was like right after an era that was also like that with vert competitions. But it was for me, it was like more of an underground cultural thing, and I, I almost I viewed it more like an art, like so, like dance or ballet or something like that. Um, where it was, some, I I didn't understand how you could like judge and and compete in something like that. And so, like, it's like I said, it was just like, it's a weird adjustment. And I mean, obviously, I think about it a lot now that I'm a sports fan, um, especially a, a big basketball fan. But it's those like sort of um, differences that were very interesting to me. All right, uh, David, if you're with us, I, I keep seeing these things flashing across the screen that say David Grubb is joining the call. If you're with us, no, why don't I'm you go? You. Okay, okay, good. Uh, why don't you go next and, and give us your takeaways? Well, my difference is I saw all of this, you know, as it was happening and paid attention to it. So a lot of this was not new. 
you know, I knew all the stuff about the beefs with Jerry Krause. I knew about the, the Pippen trade request. Those were things that I lived through as a sports fan. So um, I don't think there was a, a ton of insight from it from for me in that regard. Even the stuff about Isaiah, none of that was insightful to me. Um, so I looked at it as a piece of marketing, and it was a fantastic piece of marketing. If you were selling a legend, that's how you sell it. Uh, you know, you can say that Jordan put the warts out there, but those warts, the ones, even the, the yelling at practice, that's part of the mystique. That's part of it is that no one could compete the same way. And it's a sickness in some ways, you know, you view it that way. It's the same when we talk about Kobe Bryant, the reverence part of that, it, you know, the reverential part of it and the thing that you use it to separate those men from LeBron and, and the same with a Bill Russell is they care so much about winning that it's at a level that human, the rest of us can't understand. So in presenting that, they, you do a fantastic job. I think they did also a fantastic job of showing, again, what the trappings of incredible fame can be and how hard it is to carry that burden. Um, I think that was important too. I was disappointed in the fact that the, in how they treated the family um, aspect of it, of his life, I understand about the divorce and that Juanita Jordan certainly wanted to participate in this, in a, in a piece of propaganda. I'm sure Michael did not want her to participate, but it felt like in the 10th episode, the way they threw the kids in there just to say they had. Oh, no. I think we, we lost, lost Grub for a moment. I would have. There it goes. So, I'm sorry. There are so many other questions that I would have asked his children that would have been inoffensive. Like just what was it like being Michael Jordan's kid? What was that? What, how does hit, how does your dad's fame impact you? You know what those types of things, but it just felt like a throw in. And at the, the last thing that I away from it is that the relationship between Jordan and Scottie Pippen is not nearly as equal as I think maybe people perceive because Jordan was very critical of Scottie Pippen in that doc, in uh, the documentary and I think that that, it's, that there is a respect from Jordan as for Scotty as a player. But I think there's also a distance that is that when you hold on to those things the way Jordan does, there is a little bit of a distance there, too. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to I'm going to bring in some some emotion in this before we turn it over to Ali. Uh, obviously, I, I watched Jordan. He was my favorite player as a kid. I went to game five of that finals in 1998. Uh, we were really lucky. We anyway, long story short, uh, I was there and I worshipped at the, the Jordan statue. But I must say that I walked away from this feeling sorry for Michael Jordan. Um, I don't mean as a player. I mean, as a person, it seems like the whole thing to me, Ali, is unfortunate. At the end of this documentary, you see the entire chapter is closing with what appears to be regret after being arguably the most like successful athlete ever winning six or close to six consecutive titles. He still couldn't embrace or reflect on what he had accomplished. Add that to this flawed perspective that he needed to essentially bully his teammates in order to organize them to buy it. We know that's not true. We know he knows it uh, it's true as evidenced by his reaction to it, him retaliating to the question by painting himself as like the winner only further illustrates his outright dismissal of like, you know, you having a different perspective. We've seen nice guys like Tim Duncan might be the nicest guy in the NBA when he played, but he was still a fierce competitor. What Jordan never faced and the documentary never like really touched upon, in my opinion, is that he wasn't being hard on his teammates to teach them. He was doing it to trigger himself to overcome his own fears and insecurities, uh, no different than, than like um, Tom Ziller wrote in Good Morning Basketball, a bully. 
So when asked about like Steve Kerr, uh, they asked him, you know, why didn't anybody ever stand up to Michael? He said, who's going to tell him? No, he's Michael Jordan. This kind of enabling is, is, you know, it hurts those around him, but, but most principally, it seemed to me like it hurt him and it could have hurt his relationship. It could have hurt his kids. Anyway, just in that last episode, you could almost see the sadness in his eyes when he refers to the 1999 campaign. And you would just hope that at some point you're able to walk away with your head held high with some kind of sense of accomplishment, but that in there lies what made him potentially the greatest athlete ever. Uh, how did you feel about that moment of reflection in the last episode? I didn't pity him. I looked a lot, you know, growing up again, same age group as David. I watched his career unfold live before my very own eyes. And at the time, even as a kid, I knew there was something special about him as a competitor, first and foremost. And so I think that's just his personality. That's who he is. As David aptly said, it is kind of like a sickness. But I also believe that he would have never changed a single thing. He would never have second guessed or gone back and done something different in regards to maybe softening his image. I, I don't believe that. And I don't think a lot of these biggest competitors in today's game would do anything different either. And Diane, I, I don't know if you guys watch it, but on Sports Center after that episode, Diana Tarazi came on and she talked about how she could relate to Michael Jordan and that ability and that drive and also pushing teammates, sometimes not in the best of ways in terms of the niceness factor. And she said she would never go back and do anything different. So you have to understand from their viewpoint. And therefore, you know, I didn't look at as Michael Jordan also, you know, you know, Preston, you paying as him maybe possibly second guessing or being sad about it. I think I disagree. I think the way he finished off that episode, what was my biggest takeaway? That it's still to this day, it's maddening to him. He and the Bulls weren't giving that team wasn't given a seventh or an opportunity for a seventh title. And I truly believe in his heart, in my heart of hearts, that that's how he feels. And if it, it, that takeaway says everything you need to know about who he was, he doesn't want your sorrow. He just was, I think, more seeking just an, an understanding of who he was. And that's why he opened up the way he did. I think that's why he allowed the production to feature certain things like what was at the end of uh, episode seven, I believe, where he went in that whole spiel about. I don't care if I'm viewed as a tyrant. This is why I did it. And just talking about practice and the motivation and the desire that was required and him breaking down, you know, almost crying and calling for a break because it shows you how much that meant to him, how much it drove him. So yeah. I liked the document. I think it painted him in a perfect light. And like I said, I don't think MJ has any regrets about his career, nor should he. No, if I can real quick, I just wanted to add to that because what Ali said at the end, and I think it's that part is, you know, the, the maniacal pursuit of something is, I mean, it's whatever it's, whether you're an inventor, whether you're a scientist, whatever, mm -hmm. I mean, that's what an artist, there's just something that is consuming about it. And to me, the thing about Michael Jordan is you could, from what you see, the way it permeates his life is that basketball was the vehicle for him to satiate the competitiveness because it wasn't his first love. Baseball was his first love. That, but basketball was the thing that allowed him in the most direct way to deal with his competitiveness, that urgency to win, the immediacy of win. You know at the end of this, I can control this and I can make it happen. Because you hear it in the way Jordan refers to things about Scottie Pippen. Scottie left me alone, you know, or when Dennis left me, and, or I have to do this. I knew I had to take care of it. There's that because that is the expectation, too. And we could say it's selfish, but we expect that of them. 
That's why we say we want Jordan to take the last shot. That's why you say we wanted Kobe or Bird or whoever to take the last shot. Because Bird was that jerk too. Mm -hmm. Bird called his teammates a lot of things. Magic called his teammates a lot of things. Kobe. You know, I mean, Kobe, you know, Jeremy Lin just told that story about Kobe walking in the day before the trade deadline, and, and everybody's like, where have you been, Kobe? And he's like, I just came back to see which one of you bums wasn't going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the insanity of that group of people, and, and there's a small number of them. I wouldn't say Dr. J was that kind of person, but I think we are when we see those people like that. Look, Serena Williams where victory is the thing that you have to have, you can't let it go. You can't let it go. And that's why I think Jordan is still obsessed with that. And he thinks about that thing, even though I think in his heart of hearts, he knows they wouldn't have won seven. I think he really knows they wouldn't have. But it's the same as that I bet every shot that rimmed out. I guarantee you Larry Bird thinks about missed shots against Magic. I guarantee you Magic thinks about the 1983 final, uh, you know, when he was tragic, I mean, 80, you know, tragic Johnson, those types of things. Those guys don't let that stuff go and make some tick. Hey, real quick. What was your coolest takeaways? Cause mine was this. I was shocked at the amount of good people that surround him, like really good souls. We kind of could have guessed oh, yeah. his mother, but how cool was his mother in terms of, you know, pushing him in the right direction oftentimes. I mean, think about the whole Nike deal, right? She made him go up, fly up to Oregon and at least sit down for a meeting. But I'm really particularly pointing out and thinking about the security guards, that close-knit group. And you saw the bond they shared with Michael. They were just, you know, they could have been any kind of neighborhood group that hangs out together all the time. I mean, I thought it was wonderful seeing Gus Lett, who became a father figure. And also, I forget the curly-haired guy. I mean, just seeing the interactions and just seeing how Michael Jordan really was. You, you saw him. You saw the real genuine person away from the game, what he was like when he was with those people. So I thought that was cool as hell. Yeah, I'll go next. Uh, and then I'll turn it over to Kevin. Uh, just the way that they kind of uh, summarized the entire season, the last dance, everybody getting together, turning out the lights, putting all of their thoughts, sharing like their deepest, darkest emotions. Because when you think about something like that, uh, we can't relate it to being a member of the Chicago Bulls, but any any workplace that you might occupy, you know, there's so much that goes into to uh, a day a day in the life of being that person, your team. There's drama. You're not getting the raise that you want. Uh, perhaps a manager is mean to you. Despite all the things that they overcame, within their organization all the outside noise at the end they were still a family they still had that moment to reflect they all called it like a once in a lifetime moment and talking about Michael writing down a poem it was clear how much that season meant to all of them and despite all of the, the things that they went against they still were able to reflect on that and and really cherish it and and you would think that that season would probably be the most important in, in all of their lives regardless of what other titles they won with uh with other teams, like uh, Steve Kerr went on to win, I think, two more with the San Antonio Spurs. He still looks back at that one possibly the most fondly. I thought that was a really special moment. Kevin, do you have a thought? Yeah, I mean, what, speaking of Steve Kerr, I thought one of the craziest stories of the whole thing is that that Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan never talked about their experiences mm -hmm. of their fathers being murdered. That was, like, really shocking to me that they nev they never sat down and had a discussion about that. Um, and then the other thing I would just say is this is kind of a joke, but... Um, I don't know if you remember last podcast, so I told the uh, Dennis Rodman story about him going to the strip club and playing nothing but Pearl Jam live performances. I thought it was really <laughs> yes. funny that the, that the final song of the documentary was a Pearl Jam song because in my head it was like oh, they let Rodman have the last word by, by doing that, which <laughs> was pretty funny to me. 
Sorry, that's unemployment calling me. Uh, I'll go. Uh, <laughs> go oh, ahead. you got to go. I, I was just going to say Pizzagate, guys. How the hell did that happen? You're ordering a pizza from Michael Jordan. How does it get out that it's coming to uh, Michael Jordan? Because it's Utah. <laughs> it's Utah. You know Michael That's didn't the, order the pizza. Somebody else did. How did five guys show up on the doorstep? Who screwed that somebody up? Somebody told. So bad, I mean, man. you know, they told as soon as they checked in. Somebody told. That's there's a guy in the hotel who called his friends as soon as the Bulls checked in. You know, you know that's how it goes down. Because in every city, like you find out where somebody finds out where they post the team, and you go, the, the, you know, people go pull. Them. Yeah, back then uh, you're right, David. It was easier to do that. You're right. People would show up and just honk their horn outside of hotels all night. You know. That stuff was pretty commonplace for that time. All right, let's get to this last question, then we'll move on. It's from our friend Waka Waka Wakanda. We'll start with Kevin. Uh, He says, if you could have any Pelicans paraphernalia that is only for players, which item would it be? He says sleeveless hoodie, warm-up shorts. What you got, Kevin? Um, You know, I've always had a lot of problems with, like, the graphic design of Pelican stuff. Like, I would love to buy a ton of stuff because I'm a huge fan, but most of it looks terrible but one thing they usually get pretty decently are the shooting shirts the 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 shooting warm-up jackets uh, it would be one of those uh sorry i'm looking at ollie's article right now it's got 45 likes nicely done ollie uh let's let's go over to ollie um is there something that's really caught your eye to the pelicans where we're like damn why don't they sell that in the store hmm. i think it'd be cool to have any kind of part of history like say when they honor um Martin Luther King for, for the month of February, some kind or some kind of throwback jersey, something that's just kind of rare or has other special meaning. I think I'd want something like that. All right, Grub, I'm going to ask you that question, and I'm going to add on to it. Do you have any thoughts or perspective on what you'd like the next City Edition jersey to be? Yeah, I know exactly what I'd want the, the <laughs> next. Any, first of all, nothing with Marty Rocco's in it at all. Like, I would like something much darker i want them to go darker because new orleans is a city that comes alive at night and i want to see them use something that captures that vibe something that it has maybe um utilizes the blue that the you know uh, utilizes that that blue that the pelicans have along with some very darker tones and and really play up that the new orleans look of it that that maybe the utilizing the way our street signs look different that black street sign in the french quarter style Something like that. I mean, just be inventive with it and get creative because the other cities, theirs feel like their cities. And it's just, it feels like any generic king cake that you see where you, somebody throws purple, green, and gold. It's just, okay, I get it. And we've done it. And we've been doing this since this team moved here. New York has had probably 11 different city edition jerseys and they're all cool. And the Pelicans get the same one basically every year. So I don't ever want to see the purple, green, and gold for, or at least I don't want to see it for a good while. All right. I think that's a good one to get out of here on. (laughs) Uh, That's all the time we have, you guys. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, just retweet, share, rate us on iTunes. Uh, If you already have done that, first of all, thank you. And second of all, you're probably quarantined with somebody you care about. Why don't you just steal their phone and do it on theirs as well? Uh, Let's get out of here. Ali, I just prefaced that you had an article yesterday referencing David Griffin's um, uh, press conference. Do you have anything else coming up for us? Yeah, I'd almost finished an article yesterday before that impromptu kind of press conference popped up and covering clutch minutes. You know, we, we need to talk about what happened considering how well the starting lineup played, you know, how well they played in general after, say, December 18th or whatever that date was. 
But for some reason, closing time still remained a huge problem. So I delved into that, and that should be up later today. All right, Mr. Grubb, you have a radio show tomorrow morning, sir. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, you, like I said, you'll be on with me tomorrow at 1035. The show Hard to Paint with David Grubb, 10 a.m. till noon central on Sports 1280 a.m. You can also get it on the iHeartRadio app. And uh, beside you, I have uh, Ross Jackson to talk about the New Orleans Saints. And um, I think I'm going to have one more guest waiting to find out. And I'm about to send this thing to Ali, the Lonzo Ball, five games. I was supposed to do it yesterday. I was supposed to send it to him yesterday. My daughter, it's her last day of school tomorrow, and I'm trying to salvage her math grade with her. So that has <laughs> been my urgency. Oh, man. But it, Ali's about to get this one coming to him. So you have the five games that defined Lonzo's season for me. All right, Kevin, you just came from a meeting. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Not really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a design meeting on a project I'm working on. Nothing exciting. Um, but I will take the time to throw my jersey out there. Um, I always thought that, um, you know, one of the coolest things about Pelicans, how in, in a time of struggle, they will rip strips of flesh off of their chest to feed their children. You know, it's a sign. And it's like a symbol right. of re- resilience and uh, survival and selflessness, which I think this team is built around. And I always thought, like, if we had some sort of pinstripe uniform, and I think it would be be a nice subtle pinstripe, like a white jersey with either just glossy stripes or like a, a muted silver or gold, that then three of the stripes open up a little bit on the chest, very little bit with like some red shining through to symbolize that. I thought that would be really cool. I haven't figured out the, how everything else would work, but um, that's what I would push other than besides, you know, something like obvious, like a cash money or no limit inspired jersey would also be cool. <laughs> that would be dope. A, a pixel, uh, um, what is it? Um, what is it? The, the, the company that did the, the no limit covers, Kevin? Oh, the Mitchell and Ness. The No, the no limit was it pen and pixels. Oh yeah. I think that was, yeah, yeah. Pen and pixel. I thought you meant the, cause they did like that no limit, uh, Mitchell and Ness did like a no limit. Yeah, uh, that addition. But I mean, like a city, jer- an actual city jersey that said yeah. Pelicans in that kind of yeah, diamond encrusted way. Yeah, um, camouflage the- or something like that. Yeah, yeah. that would. Be, that, I could, I could see that working too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I, I, that would be really kind of dope too, because then that embraces the culture, and I think yeah. that's the thing that Pelicans did a much better job this year of that, of embracing the culture. They still so clumsy at times, but it was so much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You can see the effort out there. Uh, they tried really hard to, to push that message from the start of the season. Uh, we got to get out of here, you guys. Thank you. Follow David Grubb at DM Grubb, Ali at Ali Cosell, Kevin at Kevin B for Bounce. I'm Preston Ellis. You can follow me at Preston Ellis. We'll be back soon. Uh, if you have any questions, anything you'd like us to talk about, just hit us up at the Bird Calls NO on Twitter. And hey, let's dance. Let's go, pals. for listening to the bird calls on the armchair all american network if you like what you're hearing please take a moment to rate us on itunes retweet share with your friends and most importantly subscribe today